Well, here is a great question as we begin today in week three of our series. How does a bad decision become a good decision? How does a bad decision become a good decision? Based on the way that we live our lives, you would think that this happens all the time, right? That bad decisions turn into good decisions pretty frequently because the way many of us live, we make decisions all the time that move us in the direction of things and people and places that at one point in time we believed to be bad options or options where we knew better or options that we knew we should probably avoid. Isn't that true? Like every time, every time you are offered one more brownie and you go, you know, I probably shouldn't. And then you do eat the brownie. You have experienced what it is that a bad option became a good decision in your mind. Every time you stay up late binge watching a show when you know, you know, I should probably, I should probably get to sleep. I got work in the morning, got class in the morning. You're doing the same thing. Every time you make a big purchase that you don't have the money for and you say, you know, I probably don't have the money for this, but you only live once, right? YOLO. You know, like no one says YOLO anymore, by the way. Sorry about that. You know, like, like. Every time you do that, you're experiencing how we try to make a bad decision into a good one. And when you go out with that group of people that you swore you would never go out with again because you know what happens when you go out with them, every time you make that decision, you are experiencing that same thing where somehow we have turned a bad decision into what we believe is a good decision. So how does a, good, how does a bad decision become a good decision. It's a great question to ask, and it's an important question to ask as we as we as we move into week three of our series, Future You. Because as we've said all along, future you would like a word with current you about the way that you live, about the way that you handle relationships, about the way you handle business, about the way you handle money, about that way that you handle everything. And so we introduced a question that we're encouraging all of us to ask on the daily, sometimes maybe before every decision that we make. What does future you want current you to do? What does future you want current you to do? And expanding on that in every situation of life, based on your past experiences, based on your current reality, and based on your future hopes and dreams, what does future you want current you to do? Or what could current you do to help future you, to get to the places that you want to go. So future you, what we said, future you would like current you to walk wisely. Future you wants you to un wants current you to understand that life is connected, that today's decisions affect tomorrow's reality and build, in fact, build tomorrow's reality. Current you, future you would like current you to make the best decisions possible today, knowing that you will build and live in tomorrow's in the reality as future you. Future you, what we said last week, future you would like current you to surround yourself with wise people who are following Jesus because you become like the people that you spend the most time with. That's what future you would like current you to do. And today, future you would like to have a word about the things that you talk yourself into. Future you would like to have a word about the things that you talk yourself into. See, there are all kinds of things that you and I try to convince ourselves that a bad decision is a good decision. There are all kinds of times in life where we try to talk ourselves into the fact that a bad decision somehow for us is a good decision. And when I say bad decision, I'm talking about those times in life where we already know that something is a bad idea. We already know that there's some heartache and some pain built into a certain 
decision. We have that feeling in our gut. We have that feeling in our gut that something is not going to work out right about this. We know that something is unwise. These are, when I say a bad decision, these are the moments that I'm talking about where we somehow know or we somehow have this gut feeling, this thing inside of us that goes, this is something that I should avoid. Where we know all of that, where we know all of that, and we still choose that thing anyway. And then let's be honest, let's be honest. We all have a tendency to try to talk ourselves into the fact and talk, our, talk others into the fact that what we chose and what we are choosing is actually a very good decision. We know what we know ahead of time. We choose it anyway, and then we talk ourselves and others into the fact that what we are choosing is a good decision, that there was no way to see that heartbreak coming. That, 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 what, that we did everything we could to make the best decision possible, best choice possible, and things just didn't work out. That lots of people have done what we did and what we're doing, and, and, and for them it worked out, so we thought it would work out for us too. We do a lot to convince ourselves that we made the best choice possible. But I have some bad news for you about those decisions. I have some bad news for all of us about those decisions. No matter what you do, a bad choice never becomes a good decision. No matter what you do, no matter how much you talk yourself into, no, no matter how much you try to talk yourself around things, no matter what you do, a bad choice never makes a good decision. That's kind of, I'm pulling the rug out on, on, on that whole question at the beginning. How does a, a bad decision become a good decision? The answer is actually that a bad choice never becomes a good decision. It never happens. See, you can fight and scratch and claw your way out of the bad decision and work hard to turn things around, but the fact that things worked out in the end does not mean that you made a good decision. Making an unwise financial choice never becomes a good decision. Making a choice that damages your reputation and your integrity never turns into a good decision. Spending time being influenced by people that you have no business being around never turns into a good decision. Knowing what you should do and ignoring it so that you can do something more convenient and more fun that comes at a cost never becomes a good decision. And you know that, like, like I know that. You know that like I know that. But knowing that truth doesn't really stop us from doing that, does it? See, here's what, here's what we all know. A bad choice never becomes a good decision, but we talk ourselves into bad decisions all the time. A bad choice never becomes a good decision, but we talk ourselves into bad decisions all the time. Let's be honest. You give me long enough and I give you long enough, we can talk ourselves into virtually anything, right? Like we can talk, our, like I can convince myself that something's a good idea just like you can convince yourself that something is a good idea. If you give us long enough, all of us as human beings, we can come up with a way where what we're doing that we know is unwise is actually a good decision for us. We talk ourselves into these things all the time. Time. So here's a question that needs answering. Here's a question that we need to understand so that we can avoid this tendency that all of us have. How do we do that? How do we talk ourselves into the things that we know are unwise? How do we talk ourselves into relationships that we know we should avoid? How do we talk ourselves into financial decisions that we know we have no business you know, making in the first place? How do we do that? We do it actually in three ways. There's three ways I think we actually talk ourselves into these things that we know we should avoid. First of all, we justify, we exempt, 
and we ignore. We justify, we exempt, and we ignore. Let's talk about justify. Justifying is where we dig really hard, where we really dig hard to find some good that could come out of a situation, a relationship, or a decision that we want to make. We go, well, yeah, I know spending money like this isn't wise, but these types of deals don't come around all that often. Or, you know, I shouldn't take this kind of risk financially, but if it pays off, I'm going to give so much to missions. Like, I'm going to give so much money to missions after I make money, if I, if I make money, I mean, if I make money off of this risky proposition. I mean, like, this is what we do. We justify our decisions. We, we find a way that this could bring about some real good, like, if it works out in the first place, this, this will help other people, or this will help me along a long way in life. But again, a bad choice never becomes a good decision. So even if we just, as much as we try to justify it, a bad choice never becomes a good decision. The second thing we try to do is we try to exempt. And when I say exempt, I mean we try to exempt ourselves. This is where we make ourselves the exception to the rule. You're right, and we go, you're right that most people, for you know, most people, this would be an unwise decision, but I'm not most people. Sure, most people shouldn't spend their time the way I do, but I am not most people. I'm smart enough, I'm savvy enough, I, I convince myself of this, that I'm smart enough, savvy enough, hardworking enough, that what would be a problem for most people, it just isn't going to be a problem for me, that I can figure out a way through this. We exempt ourselves from the rules. We treat ourselves as the exception to the rules. And then finally, we ignore. We justify, we exempt, and then we ignore. This is the put your head in the sand approach. I do not recommend this, but let's be honest, we have all done this. We have all done this. This is, the, this is where you see a whole bunch of red flags on the side of the road, right in front of you, literally in front of your face. And for some reason, despite the fact that you see them, you ignore them because you've become so emotionally attached to whatever it is that you're pursuing that no matter what red flags come up along the way, you will not be stopped. You put your head in the sand. You put the blinders on. You put the blinders. I mean, you are not going to see anything that you don't want to see or anything that doesn't confirm what you want to do. I mean, this is, this is where we say things like, well, sure, she's irresponsible with money, but who isn't every once in a while, right? Or sure, he gets angry, but he only gets angry when he drinks too much. Well, why, like, well, how often does he drink too much? Well, it's all kind of a lot. But like, again, these are red flags that I'm going to choose. Like, I'm going to, I see them, but I'm going to ignore them. I see them, but I'm going to ignore that. And here's the thing. None of that, none of that helps future you and none of that helps future me. All of that justifying, all of that exempting, all of that ignoring, in attempting to make a bad choice into a good decision, none of that helps future you. And none of that helps future me. But that's in your nature like it's in mine. So how do we fight that? How do we resist that? What do we do? What do we need to be aware of in order to combat that thing that comes so naturally to us when there's something that we want, something that we want bad enough that we will talk ourselves past any red flags and any reasons that we should do something else? Now, luckily, luckily for us, Scripture gives a few great examples of people who refuse to do that very thing that came so naturally and that comes so naturally. One such example comes from the life of David. Old Testament David, shepherd boy David who killed Goliath. David who was a man after God's own heart. David who was God's chosen king. David who would one day become the king over the nation of Israel. David is this fascinating case study because Israel had a king who was not David's dad. 
David was not supposed to be the king. By lineage, David was not supposed to be the king. The king was named Saul, and Saul had repeatedly refused to obey the commands of God, to humble himself before God, to be patient before God, to wait on God. So God decided that he was taking the kingship from Saul, and he had sent this prophet named Sam, the prophet Samuel to, a, to a, a village out in the middle of nowhere to meet a young boy, a young shepherd boy, and to anoint this young shepherd boy, David, to be the future king. And then from that moment on, from the moment that he was anointed, David's star began to rise and Saul's star began to diminish and to dim and to, and to not be nearly as bright and to burn less and less and less bright. David, after this, would go on to, kill, to fight and to kill Goliath. He served in Saul's inner circle. He would be engaged to Saul's daughter. He would lead Saul's army into battle, and he never lost. He, it, was a, it was a rock star rise for, for young David. But when you have an insecure king and a rising star in the kingdom, issues arise all the time. And so one day, Saul heard a young group of girls singing a song, and this was the song that they sang. Saul has killed his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. I mean, like, I'll just say this. I don't think it's very catchy. I don't think that's the melody they were singing. I hope it's not. Like, that's not, like, it's not catchy. I, I don't understand why anyone would think anything of that. But Saul heard that, and Saul decided the kingdom belongs to David, and I need to kill David. In order to, to hold on to my kingdom, I've got to kill David. And so over the next weeks and months and years, David was continuously in danger. While he's serving in Saul's inner court, at one point, Saul picked up a spear and just chucked it at David. And it is so hard that it planted itself in a wall right next to David's head. And David's going like, that's a bad day at the office. Like if your boss throws a spear at you, bad day at the office. Like that's, that's, that's a bad day. And so, so David's on the run. David, Saul's son convinces David to come back. And while he's convincing David to come back, Saul plans a festival to be a trap to get David to the table to have his men lying in wait to attack and capture and kill David. David eludes that and decides that, you know, if this is how things are going to be, I need to run for my life. And from that moment until the, until the day that Saul would eventually die, David was on the run and Saul was running after him. David was running for his life. Saul was running to try to take his life. And in the midst of all of that happening, in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 24, we get this incredibly interesting account of a moment that I would imagine was one of the most tempting moments in David's Life. Here's the story that we're told in 1 Samuel chapter 24. It says this, After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. So spies are watching to figure out where David is so that Saul can go capture him. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel. 3,000, I mean, David had like 50 guys, maybe 100 guys with him. And Saul's taking 3,000 young men from all Israel and he set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way, and a cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. And David and his men, ironically, David and his men were far back in that cave. Now, this is biblical humor at its best. This is absolute, I think, that, I think this is hilarious. Like I told you guys last week that Christians should have fun. This is downright funny. This is downright funny that Saul is hunting down David. We're going to catch David. And in the middle of trying to catch David, 
you know, I got to do my business. And so the king has to do his business, but because he's the king, he can't do his business out in the open fields and just dig, you know, dig a hole out in the open fields like all the other men, because let's face it, that's not very kingish. And so he got, he finds a cave. He's like, Hey guys, I got to do, got, we got, we got to stop. Got to get off my horse. Got to get off my donkey. You know, get, we, we need to take a moment. I, I just need to reflect and pray or whatever he would tell the men that he needed to do. And he went and he found a cave to do his business to do his business. And the cave that he walks into just so happens to have David and his men hiding in the back. The irony is stronger than the smell, if you know what I'm saying. Like the irony is like, I mean, this is unbelievable. The, 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 this, is, this is just so like, wow, this is happening. And so in verse four, the men with David, they understand the irony of this moment. Like, whoa, this is a moment. This is a moment that we've got to seize. And so they said, this says this in verse four, the men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, imagine they're not yelling this, they're whispering this because after all, Saul's out there. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. As strong as the irony in this moment is, the temptation in this moment is even stronger for David, can you imagine the king that has harmed you, that has made promises and failed to deliver, that is chasing you down to end your life? And oh, by the way, the king that you are anointed to replace has just walked in undefended into the very cave that you are hiding from. And he has placed himself in one of the most vulnerable positions imaginable. I mean, David's men, David's men are going... This is the moment that you've been waiting for. This is the moment for revenge. This is the moment to take what's yours. By the way, this is the moment to take what God has promised you. David, remember all those nights where we would sit around the campfire and you would tell us about that time where, that, where the prophet Samuel came and he anointed you because you're supposed to be the king, because you're supposed to take the throne from Saul, because like, like this is that moment, David. So go and take him out. It's all going to be fulfilled. All of those promises, all of those prophecies, they're going to be fulfilled right here and right now. And if that wasn't enough, I mean, just picture, imagine how dramatic a statement it would have been for David to become the king in this way. How, like, Saul's army couldn't possibly, like, resist this. Like, that if, if Saul walked into the cave and then Saul doesn't walk out, but David walks out, holding Saul's head. I mean, th like, this would be so dramatic. I mean, even Saul's army would be like, whoa, this was ordered and ordained by the Lord. Like, we can't argue with that at all. Like, like Saul walked right into his hands, the will of the Lord. I mean, like, you couldn't argue with this at all. This is such a tempting moment. And in the middle of this moment, here's what David decided to do. Then David crept up unnoticed, and he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. I mean, imagine. Imagine David's men and their disappointment when David comes back, and he doesn't have Saul's head. He's got a corner of Saul's robe. Ooh. I mean, like, are you kidding me? Like, are, like, they're going, are you kidding me? God puts your enemy right in front of you, and this is all you do? This would have seemed like an incredible display of weakness from David. I actually believe this is an incredible display of strength 
and an incredible show of integrity. It says this in verse 5, Afterward, David was conscience-stricken. David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow, which means they tried to fight David, and David had to hold them back. I'm going to hold you back. I'm going to hold you back. Like He did not allow them to attack Saul, and Saul left the cave, and he went his way. And while David's men are thinking, you just missed it. You missed the opportunity. God gave him into your hand, and you did nothing. David actually displayed an understanding that was far advanced and far beyond any of his, any, any of his peers. David understood that a bad choice never becomes a good decision. See, in this moment, what David experienced is David did something that was so wise that we should pay attention to it years, years down, 3,000 years later. See, we need to do something that David did. We need to pay attention to the tension that you want to ignore. When you're, when you're faced with the, that thing where you want to have, have a bad choice and make it into a good decision and you ignore and you justify and you exempt yourself from the rules, we need to pay attention to the tension that you want to ignore. See, the very first thing that we're told in verse 5 that David is that David was conscience-stricken. That David was conscience-stricken, and he didn't even really do anything. I mean, he cut off a tiny corner of Saul's robe. He didn't do anything that actually caused harm to Saul. This means, what I think this means is that before David even cut the corner of Saul's robe, there was a tension in David's conscience that told him that this was a bad idea, that this was something that he should avoid, that this is a situation that he should let pass. And when that conscience tells you it's a bad idea, all the justifying and all the excusing and all the exempting in the world can't make it a good decision for you see, David had attention, and even though ignoring it would have gotten him everything that he wished for and dreamed of and hoped for in a single moment, by the way, everything that he had been promised by God, he would have gotten it in a single moment. He refused to ignore the tension, refused to justify it away, refused to play by a different set of rules. He paid attention to the tension, and it wouldn't allow him to do what any other man would have done, what most of us would have done in the situation. See, here's the thing. I don't know that David understood all of this in the moment, but I believe there's a few very clear tensions that David faced in this moment. The reason that his gut was crying, the reason his conscience was crying out to him. I think there's some things that David did in this moment that established him as a leader, that established him as a man of God, that showed that his heart really was after the heart of God. I think there's a couple tensions David faced, and we're going to put them on the screen right now. It's the tension of precedent, the tension of providence, and the tension of provision. See, when I say precedent, I, I mean, I think like in this moment, like David's going, like, do I want to become king by cutting off the head of the current king? I mean, we've like our whole nation, we've only had one. Do I want to become the second king by cutting off the head? Like, do I want to set the precedent that that's how someone becomes king? David set a, set a precedent that we don't touch the head of the anointed of the Lord. David also understood the tension of the providence that God made Saul king. Not a vote, not an election, that God made Saul king. David believed that you don't cross 
God. And David believed that to take Saul out was to cross God. And for David, he believed nothing good happened when you cross God. That so since Saul had been anointed by God, chosen by God, as long as Saul had breath in his lungs, David was going to do nothing to harm Saul because nothing good happens when you cross the Lord, when you cross the plan of God, when you, when you step over the line or boundary that God has set in place. He understood the, that, that providence. And finally, I believe he understood there, he was facing this tension of provision. Like, do I really want to become king by taking for myself something that God has promised to provide? Like, yes, I could take this for myself right now. But if I take this for myself, when it's something that God has promised to provide, I become my source. And I know what I know about me. I, like, I think David's going, I, like, I know what's true about me. I know I'm a terrible source. I want God to be my source of provision for the rest of my life. And so if I want to remove God from the equation, yeah, I can take Saul's life right now and I can take this thing into my own hands. But I refuse to take into my own hands what God has promised to provide. At the end of the day, in a million little directions, choosing what he wanted in the moment would have cost him in the long run, would have cost him in the future. Choosing that would have cost future David in a million ways. Taking matters into his own hands would have been a decision that cost him for the rest of his life. See, this is a truth that I, I think David had, had learned and David had figured out. You never obtain the blessing of God by violating the wisdom of God. You never obtain the blessing of God by violating the wisdom of God. See, future you never gets where current you wants to get when you work against God's wisdom. Future you never becomes who you hope to become when you violate what you know God wants you to do. Future you never accomplishes what you dream of when you ignore the voice of God and ignore the tension that God wants you to pay attention to. Future you never obtains the blessing of God by taking yourself, by talking yourself into what you know to be a bad decision. David paid attention to the tension, and David refused to, to settle, and David refused to take matters into his own hands. David refused to talk himself into a situation that he knew God was not in. David refused all that because he understood if he wanted the blessings of God, they would not come. They would not come because they never come by violating the wisdom of God. He refused to justify behavior that everyone would have approved of but he knew was wrong, but he knew was wrong. He refused to ignore the tension that would have been so easy to ignore. He refused to think that he played by a different set of rules simply because of his gifting and his anointing. Simply put, David refused to talk himself into something that wisdom wanted him to avoid. And as we talk today about the bottom line, here's the bottom line. Here's what future you wants current you to do. Future you wants you to stop talking yourself into things that wisdom is working to keep you away from. Future you wants you to stop talking yourself into things that wisdom is working to keep you away from. See, for every one of us, at some point of our lives, at some point of our lives, there is something that we want, but we know that wisdom doesn't want for us. It's that relationship that you want to pursue even though you knew, know that they're not, not a good influence on you. It's that purchase that you want to make without telling your spouse because if you tell your spouse, they're going to try real hard to talk you out of it. 
It's that person that you're flirting with that you hope nobody in your small group finds out about because you know they'll call you on it. And when you face that moment, future you wants you to stop talking yourself into the things that wisdom is working to keep you away from. Future you wants you to pay attention to the tension, not ignore the tension. Future you wants you to pay attention to the tension and not exempt yourself from the tension. Future you wants you to pay attention to the attention and not justify the tension and not justify the decision. Future you wants you to stop talking yourself into things that wisdom is working hard to keep you away from. If you need another reason to stop yourself from this, here's maybe the best one. When you talk yourself into a bad choice, it didn't become a good choice. It became a bad choice that you were blind to. It didn't become, like, think about the times in your life where you've done this. When you talk yourself into a bad idea or when you talk yourself into a bad decision, it didn't become a good decision. It became a bad, it still is a bad decision that now you are blind to. When you talk yourself into a bad choice, again, it doesn't become a good choice. It never does. It's still a bad choice, but now because you talked yourself into it, because you decided to, to double down on it, you go into it blind. You walk blindly. You walk ignoring all of the stuff that you should be paying attention to. And you find yourself walking blindly on a dangerous path, blind to the potential dangers. And that's something somewhere in some place that you never want to find yourself. So pay attention to the tension. Choose to trust that you will never live in the blessing of God if you violate the wisdom and the will of of God. Choose to live with an appreciation of and a trust in the fact that if you want to receive and live in and inhabit and, and maintain the blessings of God, you cannot and will not achieve that by violating the wisdom of God, by talking yourself into something that you know wisdom would have you avoid. You will not get there. So, so what do we do? What would be the wisest version of current, what would the wisest version of current you do for future you when there's something that you want to talk yourself into doing that you know you have no business doing in the first place because of what it will cost future you? About, about 20 years ago, about 20 years ago during my first time reading through the Bible for myself, um, I was an 18-year-old college freshman in the dorm at UW-Eau Claire, University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, sitting in Horn Hall. At night, I was doing my, my nightly Bible reading. I was reading my five chapters of, a, of the day. I was trying to get through the Bible in a year. And I remember for the very first time reading through the book of Proverbs. And I got towards the end of Proverbs, and I read this verse that just absolutely jumped off the page to me. And I've tried for the last 20 years, I've tried to do exactly what this verse says. Here's what it says in Proverbs 27, verse 12. It says, The prudent see danger and take refuge. The prudent see danger and take refuge. But the simple keep going and pay the penalty. The prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and pay the penalty. It says the prudent, the wise person, when they see danger, when they face attention, when there's something standing in, the, in, the, in their face that says, you should not go any further. The prudent person, when they see danger, when there's something that they want, but they know that they'll have to talk themselves into, they'll have to ignore some realities and justify the decision and act like they're the exception of the rule in order to get it. When they know they'll probably endure some heartache if they make that decision, they don't make that decision. They run for cover. They run for cover. They take refuge. In contrast, 
It says the simple person, the foolish person, the unwise person, when they see the same things, when they face that tension, when they face the, the, the choice of like, am I going to choose this and justify all that? Am I going to choose this and ignore all that? Am I going to choose this and, and, and exempt myself from all of that? They just keep on going and they always pay the penalty. They suffer the consequences of keeping on going. And so today, what I want to do for us, what I want to do for us is I want to teach us a, simple, a very simple prayer as we close today. A very simple prayer in response that, that, I, that I've been trying to pray for the last 20 years in response to this verse. That, that I think may just help us, if we pray this at the beginning of every single day, may just help us in the face of those decisions that we know are bad decisions, but we want to talk ourselves into. So here's the prayer that I want us to pray starting this week. God, give me eyes to see, give me courage to change, and give me strength to stand. God, give me eyes to see, give me courage to change, and give me strength to stand. God, God, give me eyes to see. Like, God, I, 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 like, if there's something in front of me that I need to be paying more attention to, God, help me to see it. Help me to be aware of it. Help me to be, help me to have my eyes wide open, my ears wide open. Help me to be attentive to everything that you want me to see. God, give me eyes to see. But let's be honest, for many of us, we have the eyes to see. We lack the courage to change. So God, I, I trust you to give me eyes to see. And God, as you give me eyes to see, would you also give me courage to change course? Would you give me wisdom? Would you give me courage to, to when I see something in front of me, what, to, to not ignore it, to not justify it, to not exempt myself from it? but actually give me the courage to change direction, to seek refuge, to run for cover, to stop moving in that direction for one more, one more moment, for one more step, to actually change course. God, give me courage to change course. And God, would you give me strength to stand? God, I know that when I start trying to change course, when I start trying to change directions, there's going to be some things in me that want to go back to the old way of doing things. And God, I know that that way of doing things is going to cause me harm or could cost future me in great, in great ways. So God, when I, when I am moving in a new direction, when, I'm, when, I, when you've given me the courage to change, God, would you also give me strength to keep going? Would you give me the strength to stand? Would you give me the strength to keep moving in the new direction that you have for me? See, that's what future you wants for you. That's what God wants for you. God wants to, this is a prayer that God always answers. That God, when we pray, God, give me eyes to see, God will give you eyes to see. When you pray, God, give me courage to change, God will give you courage to change. When you pray, God, will you give me strength to stand and keep moving in the direction that you would have me moving? God will give you strength to stand. That's what future you wants. That's what God wants. That's what you want. And you can have it today by simply deciding to be the prudent person who when they see danger, they take refuge. And we take refuge in the Lord. We take refuge in his word. We take refuge in his promises. We take refuge in his courage. We take refuge in his strength. And that's how we do this better. That's how we avoid the temptation to talk ourselves into things that wisdom would have us avoid. Future you wants that for you. Future you wants current you to stop talking yourself into things that wisdom would have you avoid. And this is how we do it. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for who you are to us. Thank you that you are our Heavenly Father. 
So God, I simply pray today what, what I just encouraged all of us to pray. God, give us eyes to see. Help us to see what it is that you want us to see in every situation. God, give us courage to change. Help us to be willing to change direction. Help us to have the, 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 the wisdom to know what direction we should choose when we need to change. And God, would you give us the strength to stand? Because we're going to need it. Because we're going to want to turn back. Because we're going to want to turn back to the old ways. Would you give us strength to stand and to keep moving in the direction that you have us moving? So God, help us to do that. Give each one of us wisdom to know what to do. Give us the courage to actually put it into practice. We love you, God, and we pray this all in Jesus' strong name. Amen.